I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. As part of FEMA's renewed effort to build a national culture of preparedness, we're updating the National Response Framework, which serves as a national guide for how we as a country respond to all types of disasters and emergencies. Built on the scalable, flexible, and adaptable concepts identified in the National Incident Management System, the NRF, the National Response Framework, is one of five documents in the suite of national planning frameworks. Each framework covers one preparedness mission area, prevention, protection, mitigation, response, and recovery. This update is an effort to implement key lessons learned from the unprecedented 2017 hurricane and wildfire seasons, and this fourth edition of the NRF will reflect the constantly evolving relationship between business, industry, and infrastructure, and will better align the protection and response frameworks. On this episode of the FEMA podcast, we dive into the details of the update and how it will emphasize stabilization of critical lifelines and coordination across the critical infrastructure sectors. Okay, so Jeremy Greenberg, who's the director of the Office of Policy and Performance in FEMA's Response Directorate, uh, thanks for joining us. And thanks for having us. And uh, Matt Wambacher, who leads the National Infrastructure Coordinating Center at the DHS Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. Thank you very much for having me here today. All right, so the National Response Framework um, has been around since 2008, and it's evolved a little bit um, since that time. But um, what can you walk me through the evolution of why we even have the National Response Framework, where it comes from? The, the National Response Framework actually has a history before it became a framework. The uh, Federal Response Plan in 1992 was the first time we, we looked at a coordinated federal approach to say, how do we leverage all departments and agencies to come together uh, to carry out a response? And as you indicated, that's changed over time. It's become a National Response Framework, uh, which was a, a guiding principle about how we bring departments and agencies together, uh, created emergency support functions, which grouped uh, departments and agencies uh, to carry out similar like functions. And then over time, since 2008, we've uh, updated National Response Framework a few times, primarily based on lessons learned from real-world incidents. How do we better incorporate private sector? Uh, how do we understand critical infrastructure? How do we understand our approach over time? And with the uh, lessons that we learned from the 2017 season and even the 2018 season, we uh, determined that it was necessary to, to make some critical updates. Uh, and that's where we are today. So if I go back in time to 2008, if I recall, there was some consternation about moving away from a national response plan, what people commonly thought of of a plan, and moving to this framework concept. Um, how are those two um, concepts different? So the, the key thing that we did in, in the change to the framework was we, we left the framework broad in nature, as you're talking about, where uh, people were concerned about overly prescriptive plans that said, this is how you shall do. And what we did was we created the framework and then we wrote annexes. Uh, and early on, the annexes were scenario-based. So they had, whether it was a hurricane annex, an earthquake annex. And then even from there, we said, okay, that maybe wasn't getting everything we needed. So we created the Federal Interagency Operating Plan or the FIOP. And we said, underneath the FIOP, we can write these annexes down to a very tactical level as needed with our, our state and local partners. But really keeping that framework broad in our approach seemed to be the, uh, the best effort and the best approach. 
Okay, so if I just want to repeat back to you, so I kind of understand it. So the framework uh, is left to be sort of the broad construct about how everybody will work together. And then the annexes provide the specific plan for any particular um, event, whether it be all hazards or an earthquake or a hurricane, something like that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think the most critical thing is, uh, like all of our plans, they're based on a series of assumptions. So when that scenario plays out, we have to ensure that we have the operational flexibility to say, okay, this is how we wrote our plane based on these assumptions. Did that mirror what we're seeing in real world and then be adaptive to that approach? Okay, so now fast forward to today, we're looking at, we're in the process of rewriting the a portion of the national response framework um, based on the 2017 hurricanes. Um, what specifically in the after action report that was released as following the 2017 hurricanes kind of led to the need to um, have a rewrite? So there were a couple of key areas. I'll talk about two of them and then turn over to Matt uh, for the critical infrastructure side. So first and foremost, uh, the introduction of the, the lifeline construct. And I think from, from our perspective, that's the most critical uh, change and what we're we're really driving as outcome-based solutions. Everybody always has an outcome that you're trying to achieve during a disaster, life-saving, uh, life sustainment, property preservation. But what we're able to do is introduce this construct to better align our operational priorities and our situational awareness. That was that was one uh, key area. And the second uh, key area is the focus on integrating the private sector and critical infrastructure. I'll turn over to Matt to talk about that in detail. Yeah, and I think both of the after action reports at FEMA and both uh, then NPPD, which is now the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, we both identified that government resources alone cannot uh, meet all of community needs and that we need to continue and maintain close partnerships with private sector partners, not just during a disaster, but every single day, uh, because oftentimes they can help solve problems better and faster than the government can. So uh, we also uh, look towards this lifeline construct, and it really gives us the ability working in, in partnership with the, all the other agencies in private industry to stabilize critical lifelines for rapid restoration of communities so they return to normalcy as quickly as possible, and then really provides a coordination across the infrastructure sectors. So we have to look at the dependencies and the interdependencies of critical infrastructure, find that, that single node that we need to get back up in an operational status, which leads to broader restoration in the community. And I think we did see some examples in 2018, hurricane season, of using the lifeline construct that more rapidly informed the decision-making process, and it was a little bit more streamlined uh, for, to, to get to those answers. I think the other critical thing is the the addition of ESF-14. So uh, when the 2008 version of the National Response Framework was uh, first delivered, there were 15 emergency support functions. When the National Disaster Recovery Framework came into play, we took ESF-14, which was long-term recovery, and, and had an entire framework for that. So that uh, laid vacant for a while. In the update to ESF-14, you'll see a new ESF, uh, the cross-sector uh, business and infrastructure, and that covers exactly what Matt was talking about, just gives a very specific home for it. So going back to the national response framework, I think it's important to recognize that that document is not just for the federal government. It kind of aligns how all responders everywhere in the nation come together to, you know, uh, work a particular problem or event, right? Yeah, it's a whole government document. So if we think about it that way, it's a local, maybe county, state, federal, um, multiple agencies within the federal government. Um, 
now are we saying we're expanding it to the private sector, or has the private sector involvement always been there in the NRF? The private sector involvement has always been there. If you look at the the um, updated version, even beyond the 2008, there's uh, casual references and then some specifics to the private sector. But to the extent that Matt was just talking about or we're seeing in, in the uh, ESF 14, that's, that's our new push to really show the private sector operators and owners that we have a place for them at the table, that this is not just a federally run operation. And also that it, I think, unifies the effort between the federal government, non-governmental agencies, private sector, state, local, tribal uh, organizations as well. They are integrated into the into the concept of operation that we have uh, moving forward. And they're integrated into the operation. So part of ESF 14 is the National Business Emergency Operations Center. In my office, we hold daily calls. We hold uh, routine meetings with them during a disaster to get their perspective, gain uh, what they view are the, uh, the important things, and we communicate those back into the system. The 20, just to add on, the, I think the 2018 season, both hurricanes, wildfires, and even the uh, no-notice earthquake that we had up in Alaska recently, all were good indicators for us to validate the concepts that we had, sort of the vision behind the NRF update and push it into reality. And, and we saw some really good success uh, being able to, as a federal government, enable private sector operations so that restoration could occur quicker and survivors can get the, uh, the outcomes that they need basically back in their homes, back in their communities faster. Well, let's talk about the uh, NRF update. Um, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of it. So what specifically is going to change? So we talked about a couple of things. First, the uh, introduction of the community lifelines, uh, having them in the national response framework, having them in uh, the, the guiding document, the principal document on how we respond to an incident is really going to enhance the education uh, throughout the nation about what lifelines are and how they're utilized. Second, uh, as we talked about the advent of ESF 14 or the, the re resurrection of ESF 14 as that cross-sector business and infrastructure uh, organization. It's there to really represent uh, maybe some of the critical infrastructure sectors that didn't easily fit into other emergency support functions. Some are a very natural fit, transportation to transportation. Others, like the financial sector or elections, they didn't have a natural way to fit into NRCC, ROCC, and JFO operations. So it gives you that mechanism. And as Matt was talking about, the National Business Emergency Operations Center really a clearinghouse for our private sector partners, both for us to enable them in limited scope, limited duration, how can we assist a private sector entity? And then how do we utilize, we being the whole government, utilize private sector operations? If a community uh, store is back up and running or a big box store is back up and running, then that is an indicator to FEMA, the state emergency managers and local emergency managers that, that community is coming back up online. So how do we communicate back and forth about how we can uh, advance that approach? So the li lifeline concept allows us to have sort of a, um, a red, green, yellow kind of a, uh, an identification of whether that sector is uh, in good shape or maybe needs some additional support. Was there a way to capture that from the private sector before? In some regards, there was. I mean, there was national-level reporting, which would talk about uh, kind of high-level uh, matters. I think the community lifelines, uh, there is uh, at times some confusion. People think that a community lifeline replaces a critical infrastructure sector. That is not the case. A uh, community lifeline may have two or three uh, or four or five different critical infrastructure sectors that are contributing factors. And so we have to look at those that have uh, sort of the cross-cutting uh, dependencies and interdependencies. We saw examples, uh, certainly in the 2017 hurricane season, where there were issues that arose that there were there was no one 
ESF that could uh, that could take care of it. It was across a bunch of different ESFs, a bunch of different infrastructure sectors, critical issues. It had to be uh, had to receive the full effort of the U.S. government, uh, and it kind of helped inform why we're doing this. That brings up another really good point. Uh, there's been some confusion about whether or not lifelines are replacing core capabilities and uh, another area of focus that we've seen in presidential policy. Uh, and, and that's not true. The core capabilities are a tool that we use to uh, achieve our lifeline outcomes, right? Stabilization is is a point in time where we uh, where we all have achieved a certain level of understanding. The restoration hasn't occurred. It's about the capability and not the condition in the environment. But the core capabilities are the tools that we use to get us to that point. So there's been some discussion about it, are we swapping one for another? And it's uh, it's it, one is enabling another, not a, a swap out of one or the other. So Jeremy, you were talking about the core capabilities. Um, so what are the core capabilities in a response? So the core capabilities are actually it's a proper term uh, under Presidential Policy Directive Eight. It created a list of uh, capabilities that jurisdictions uh, were required to have. Everything from uh, public information and warning to firefighting, safety and security, and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, communities have been working off of these core capabilities lists for a long period of time, and some communities have embraced them uh, and taken them as the guiding principle for how they run an operation. Others have met the uh, grant guidance and understood that they have to be implemented. Uh, overall, the the core capabilities are a benefit to emergency managers because it gives you uh, buckets to, to operate within. But those buckets and the operations that you're you're carrying out, those are informing or uh, bring stabilization to the lifeline. So the, the critical issue is these are a ways in which you're operating to get to an end, which is the, the stabilization of each. So they're not in competition with one another. Absolutely not. They they work uh, they work with each other, and arguably the the uh, challenge that people have had with the core capabilities of okay, you can carry these capabilities out, but to what end? And that question was being asked over and over. So this application of of the lifelines gives you that desired end state that everybody had been trying to seek and, and articulating over time. We just hadn't called it this. So let's drill down a little bit more into the outcomes-based um, response and, and recovery. Um, wh what do we really mean by outcomes-based? So emergency managers, we collectively do three things. We establish some sort of unified coordination construct, a, a command and control uh, construct. We gain, maintain, and communicate situational awareness. We talk about what the situation is on the ground, what the conditions are, what the capabilities are, and then we provide resources, whether that's a local jurisdiction providing resources to its own citizens, perhaps using mutual aid to the county next door, emergency management assistance compact, state-to-state -state requests, or the federal government providing those resources. So the context of those three operations, those three things taking place, emergency managers have been doing that for decades. What we were struggling with, particularly in the 2017 season, is were the actions that we were taking, and when I say we, federal, state, local, tribal, territorial, and private, everybody was involved, were we achieving stabilization, were we achieving an outcome, making something better? And it was very difficult, uh, not just in Puerto Rico, but throughout the 2017 season, a variety of places, to see what actions we were taking and what outcomes we were trying to achieve, that unity of effort that we talk about all the time. So the, the Lifeline tool really gives you a measurement to say, I've taken this decisive action. I've pushed a resource, whether it was a commodity, a piece of equipment, a human resource, anything from an urban search and rescue team all the way to disaster emergency communications or a bottle of water. The question that we're trying to answer is, are we achieving stabilization? So when you look across the red, yellow, green that you were just talking about, we know that we're not going to bring restoration to a community within 72 hours, but we always work to stabilize the situation in 72 hours. Does that mean people have their minimum needs met? And that's what we're really talking about with the outcome-based solutions. 
so if I can maybe provide an example. So if there is no food source available or no, no, no commodity source available, um, the stabilization would look like uh, maybe FEMA or another governmental entity coming in and providing some meals ready to eat. Um, that's sort of um, shelf-stable meal. But green would be that all the grocery stores are are open and available. So and not stopped. exactly, and this is oh, so okay. th this is actually a really good discussion. So when we talk about stabilization, we are talking about minimum standards. We're not talking about stabilization equaling restoration, and that's an important distinction for us. So using your example of food, if uh, people are evacuated to a shelter and uh, they're they're uh, staying in that shelter, if they are being provided meals ready to eat, or even if they're in their own homes, if they're being provided temporary capability, they have food, then by our metric, that is stable. It's not restored. Restoration would be that they could go down to the grocery store, buy food off the shelf that's provided through a normal supply chain. But what we're looking at is, do we have minimum capability? And if we have minimum capability, then that makes us stable. And that's probably the hardest part of the conversation we've been having uh, about this is traditionally green means good. In the case of immediate stabilization, green means you have a minimum capability. And we've looked and worked across all the, the all of the lifelines uh, to understand and provide examples to everybody so we, we have a common understanding of what stable means to, to each owner and operator. And I think one thing here, too, is what my office does, because we're in support of FEMA and our National Risk Management Center, when a disaster happens, we actually undertake some analysis and look at what are those key infrastructure nodes that we can help prioritize and sequence uh, working with FEMA to get back to that area where we're stabilizing uh, more quickly and to meet that 72-hour uh, you know goal. Restoration is an entirely different issue. Uh, that, in many cases, can take years, as we'll see in Puerto Rico with the uh, energy system. That is going to take a long time to, uh, to fully restore because it involves design, recovery, and a bunch of other things. One other benefit of the, the Lifeline approach, you know, we, we talk about all the things that FEMA does, whether it's we write deliberate plans, we uh, provide equipment, we do training, we have exercises. And uh, one of the challenges has been sometimes our plans don't always operationalize themselves. They're long, very deliberate, well-written plans, but they don't give you the operational uh, details that you need. The new push now is working with our state and local partners through the regions to say, when you write a plan, write what stabilization means to you by each of these lifelines for your community. So it's not a headquarters person in operations or in planning saying, oh, this is what we think stabilized communities would look like across the U.S., but it's specific to each individual community to say, this is what stabilization will look like. This is what I will put in my plan. And that gives us a target to set uh, when we start our operations, say this is what we need to do to meet the objective set forth by the state. So as we look at this update, what is going to remain the same from the na national response framework? I think if you're a, a national response framework purist, someone who studies the, that guide, uh, it's not going to look uh, extraordinarily dissimilar from what you've seen in the past. You'll still see the whole of government approach. You'll still see uh, locally executed, state-managed uh, and federally supported operations. That's a theme throughout. So you'll see those things. Uh, the ESF annexes, the emergency support function annexes, will remain uh, untouched with, with the exception of ESF-14 being the addition. Um, what you'll see, uh, the changes that we already talked about, uh, the the cross-sector coordination piece really jumping out at you, the private sector integration really popping out, and then the, the lifelines uh, come in early on to sort of set the conditions for the rest of the document. We talked about how the national response framework is really intended to uh, encompass the entire um, span of emergency management from the local to the federal level. Um, what does the practitioner on the ground really need to understand about this update? 
I think the most critical thing is that uh, we, we FEMA, are using uh, the lifeline construct for operational decision-making, operational prioritization, and situational awareness. So the key thing for us is getting out and explaining how the lifelines were developed and how they're being utilized. Because from our perspective, if a local emergency manager on the back of his or her truck in their you know, initial incident command can use uh, that construct to give a quick situational awareness uh, rundown, then that'll give a good indicator of the complexity of the incident, the potential need for state support or federal support. So as a practitioner, I would encourage everyone to just get familiar with that approach. The second thing is how do we really leverage uh, private sector and integrate them into our operation? Matt offered up a, a couple of really good examples that we're already seeing. Uh, and we know that this is happening at the state level and we know it's happening at the local level. This just is really codifying that approach. So we have a cross-sector coordination council that we uh, work with routinely uh, in my office. And one of the things that we do, and we learned this the hard way in 2017, uh, by having a meeting with that group too late into the storm season, the first time that there was a storm that was going to make landfall, before it made landfall, um, we, we met with them, we understood their priorities, their needs, uh, and some of the unique requirements. So we were ahead of it a little bit, um, and then uh, we were better poised, I think, once the uh, response began to take place. So FEMA Administrator Brock Long has been on the podcast twice talking about the strategic uh, plan and and how one of those pieces is reducing the complexities uh, in FEMA. And it seems like, to me, uh, boiling down the, uh, the work that is done in response into community lifelines seems like something that would lend itself to that part of the strategic plan. But maybe also readying the nation for catastrophic events. Can maybe you speak to um, how the NRF update is advancing the strategic plan? Absolutely. I think when you talk about uh, preparing the nation for catastrophic incidents and then quickly dovetail that into reducing complexity, sometimes people aren't always aligned. You know, hey, writing a, a plan for a, a catastrophic incident is comprehensive in its nature, right? Just by default, you want to know all the problems you're going to have, all the resources you're going to need. But marrying that with the reducing complexity brings you that lifeline construct. And the lifeline really brings some of that calmness and some of the basics back to uh, emergency management. So I think it dovetails nicely into the overall strategic plan set forth by the administrator. Jeremy, the, the NRF update and the introduction of the community lifelines, it, it seems like truly a, a common sense approach to what you might expect in the chaotic nature of a disaster response. Um, you know, I can just imagine, you know, a community that has just gone through a major earthquake that obviously it's a no notice event. And so you need a quick way of identifying what people need in the community and how they can be um, brought back to some kind of stabilization. So um, it, it does seem pretty common sense. Mark, I agree. And I think that the reason that it's taken off so well and people have embraced it is because it is simple to understand and it is based in common sense. It gives you a tool for understanding the situation, but just as importantly, prioritization and sequencing. You know, what do you need when? Uh, in, a, in a catastrophic incident, everybody wants all the resources right away. But when we have limited resources that we have to apply across uh, multiple jurisdictions, uh, we have to have some way to prioritize and understand in sequence what do you need to bring stability to your community, and this tool is is really helping drive that discussion. And I think this just helps promote that response. It's unified uh, in purpose, has better communication amongst the whole community. And we saw plenty of examples in 2018 where uh, regional offices, both within CISA and FEMA uh, and elsewhere, were using the lifeline construct. And that really aids in lending speed towards decision-making assistance for senior leaders. 
We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.